Shortly after midnight on the warm, muggy morning of August 12, 1877, eight fully armed men silently approached Rio Grande City, Star County, Texas, an isolated hamlet on the left bank of the Rio Grande, approximately 100 miles upstream from Brownsville. All of the band were of Mexican descent, but of undetermined nationality. Some resided in Camargo, Tamalipas, just across the river on the Mexican side, where most likely they had planned and launched the incursion. Under cover of darkness, sometime between 1 and 2 o'clock, the gang silently slipped into the center of town, unnoticed by any of the still-slumbering residents of the overwhelmingly Mexican-American community, or the approximately 300 United States soldiers stationed at the nearby Ringgold Barracks military post. When they reached the county jail, one of the intruders banged loudly on the gate and yelled to the two dozing guards inside that he had a prisoner in his custody and orders to turn him over for safekeeping. The instant one of the jailers unlocked the gate, the bogus lawman knocked the man to the ground, then shot and seriously wounded him. The other assailants pushed their way through the door, firing their weapons. They shot and killed the other guard and brutally pistol-whipped and wounded an unidentified woman, probably the wife of one of the jailers. Roused by the disturbance, Stark County District Attorney Noah Cox, who was sleeping in a room on the second floor of the building, rushed out to investigate. As soon as Cox emerged from his quarters, one of the assailants shot him with a revolver, seriously wounding the attorney and leaving him for dead. In the meantime, other members of the raiding party efficiently carried out the principal objective of the assault. They unlocked the cell doors and liberated the notorious Segundo Garza, a man who delighted in bragging that he had murdered 27 Americans and who now faced trial for yet another killing when the district court convened in October. Although Anglo-Texans considered Garza to be one of the most dangerous thugs on the lower border, he enjoyed great popularity among many Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. The attackers also freed Rodolfo Espronceda, a well-known former military officer, Mexican military officer, serving a sentence for stealing horses. During the melee, all the other prisoners escaped and had already disappeared into the night. Once they had broken the shackles binding Garza's ankles, the raiders, along with Garza and Espronceda, fled upriver on foot. Eluding the pursuit of a detachment of cavalry sent out from the Ringgold Barracks, the 10-man party reached a place called Rancheria, about seven miles upstream from Rio Grande City, where they crossed safely to the Mexican side. This passage is from General Rafael Benavides and the Texas-Mexico Border Crisis of 1877 by Michael M. Smith. My name is Melissa Ford, and this is Hard Country. Hello and welcome to The Hard Country. My name is Joshua Trevino and I'm the Chief of Intelligence and Research here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Melissa, great passage, fascinating incident. Uh, Rio Grande City, uh, still around in Stark County, one of the one of the settlements uh, upriver from the Rio Grande Valley. It's uh, You hit Rio Grande City before you hit Roma. Um, it has a very uh, distinguished and I would say crumbling uh, downtown. So anybody who's able to go there and see the remains of the old Ringgold Barracks uh, would be well advised to do so. Um, it is a, a very historical place uh, in South Texas. But yeah, I, I really like this passage uh, that you've chosen to read um, uh, because it's it's obviously an incident that illuminates sort of the, the violence and uncertainty that historically has characterized the Texas-Mexico border. And uh, you yourself have just seen 
the Texas-Mexico border. You're very familiar with Mexico, but but you hadn't been familiar with the border. Uh, t t tell us about your trip there. Yeah. Uh, you've seen a lot. I did. I saw a lot. And, and thank you for bringing that up. It is very relevant. And the reason I wanted to read this passage is because, as we read, in 1877, there was a lot of tension at the U.S.-Mexico border. And I think that now in 2023, uh, in fact, there's even more and we're actually at a near breaking point. And I think it's easy to hear it from other people and to formulate your opinion on what you're reading on the news. Um, but I had actually, like you said, I had never been to the border before. And a lot of people on the trip were very surprised when I said that because we're very familiar with Mexico, right? In Mexico policy. Let me pause here real quick. Trip to where? Tell them to where El you were. Paso. Yes, yes, to El Paso and not just El Paso. Not just El Paso, which is what I expected, but I had the treat to go into Juarez, which was amazing. Ciudad Juarez, I didn't expect to be able to, but a door opened up. I took it. Funny enough, I didn't tell anyone that I was going. I didn't even tell you, but no. I definitely didn't tell my husband. I didn't tell my parents because I think I think you know and a lot of people know that it's not what it used to be, right? I mean, yeah. you've told me before that growing up, you were able to cross into Mexico to go shopping, to go to lunch, to go visit family. And clearly that's not the case anymore because now crossing over can get you killed. So yeah. I didn't tell anybody. I'm back to tell the story, but... Um, we were able to cross to Juarez on our second day in El Paso. And it was um, more than anything, I would call it like a very heartbreaking, a very heartbreaking scene at the border and beyond the border as well, I think in the city in general. And I, I guess I expected to feel more like outraged by the situation that's happening, mm -hmm. but mostly it was just really sad. And, and I told you a little bit about it, but uh, we, we crossed over. We had a lot of very cool opportunities. Uh, we. The first things we did is we went to some shelters, which we've talked about how a lot of the people that are coming in to the U.S. through Mexico are from all over, but we definitely saw it. In the, uh, in the migrant shelters in Ciudad Juarez, in the migrant waiting shelters, to cross. Yeah. Waiting to cross. Who yes. did you see? You don't see Mexicans, obviously, not even on the streets, really. Um, we saw a lot of Africans. We saw a lot of Haitians. And then we saw a lot of Central Americans and from South America. Colombians and Venezuelans. Colombians, that's quite interesting. A lot of Colombians, a lot of Venezuelans, of like course. a lot of people from there. And uh, what was cool is I was able to speak to a lot of them because they speak Spanish and a lot of them don't speak English. And so uh, one of the people that we met, we walked around the migrant encampments um, and the mm -hmm. block that we were mostly on was just mostly like a Venezuelan encampment. So we got to talk to a few of the, the, the people that were living there in very sad conditions, you know, no running water, uh, basically sleeping on the street right across the street, actually, from where that fire was a couple of weeks ago in Juarez we uh, should, from we, we the should, migrant shelter. Yeah, we should tell the listener about that. Go ahead. What's the, what's the detail on that fire? Well, you can tell it in a little bit more uh, no, detail sure. than I can. I, I, I'd be happy to. Uh, so, so, so basically, there was, there was a migrant shelter in Ciudad Juarez run by the Mexican government. And, uh, and and of course, we have to understand that everybody who comes through these shelters who's a migrant is is trafficked. Right. Um, in this case, the migrants were locked in uh, to the shelter and uh, a fire started. There's actually video of the uh, kind of the shelter attendants uh, who could have opened the door uh, to let people out of the burning building, but chose not to, um, very deliberately so. And we can theorize as to why that is. Uh, but uh, I forget the number that was killed, but it was in the dozens, uh, I think. I think it's 40. 
It was about 40 yeah. people? Yeah. I think it's exactly 40 because uh, that's awful. what all the signs said outside. Oh, did it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, just a, just a nightmare. But go ahead, please. Yeah, yeah. So it was right outside of there that there were a lot of camps. Um, it was a lot of tents. Some of them didn't have tents. It was really just like a blanket on a tree, mm. which was really terrible. But I, I got to talk to a lot of them since I speak Spanish. And actually, Roy, our senior writer here at TPPF, he wrote a really good story on of one of the people that we talked to. His name was Jorge. Yeah. And we went up to him. He looked friendly. So, you know, just started. I just started talking to him. I actually, I wonder if we can link this, but I have a picture with him. I think uh, we can. Maybe yeah. we can link that. Um, but, you know, I asked him, well, you know, what made you want to come here? What did your journey look like? Like, what made you decide to cross? When are you crossing? And he said that he was crossing that night. And this was this was May 11th. This was exactly a week ago on a Thursday. And that night was when Title 42 was set to expire. So Jorge may be uh, the neighbor of one of our listeners right now. He may be, yeah. yeah. yeah Honestly, he, he might be already. But what, what really surprised me and what really surprised a lot of people in our group is that a lot of the people, a lot of the immigrants that are coming know exactly what's happening. They knew what Title 42 was. They knew what Title 8 was. They were very familiar with the situation and they, they knew exactly, you know, what they were doing. Who's but, informing them? I apologize for interrupting, but I'm just curious. Who, who, who's informing them? How do, how do they get so well informed? I mean, obviously, I they have too. a rational interest in it. Yeah, but, uh, I wonder, too. I think a lot of it maybe is word of mouth. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know who's advising them. They all have the app. A lot of them have the app. Let's tell the listeners what the app is. The, 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 there's this app where you basically get in line and they tell you when, when to cross. It's a U.S. Right? government app. The U.S. government right. app. Right. So you can apply for actually a migration hearing, uh, supposedly from the Mexican side. And then and then it gives you, I, I've heard, uh, you can tell me if anybody told you this, uh, that it's, it's buggy, that it crashes a lot, that it's very difficult to use. Is that? Did I you hear any of that. that? Not on this trip because okay. we didn't talk um, to them about like when the app was telling them to come over. We, mm. we really just wanted the opportunity to hear their stories and why they were coming. And what was really fascinating is Jorge told me that he left Venezuela in early November. So it's been a really, really long journey, a long journey to get to where he was last week. And it was a really hard journey too. He told us, I'll link Roy's story because he goes into a little bit more depth, but he told us that he had a really hard time getting here. He ran out of money a lot of time, mm. a lot of times. And he went hungry a lot of times, which is, is and he was very dehydrated at some points. So he, he kind of, you know, told us his story. Um, was but, he effectively on foot the whole way, like the, yeah. like the Darien Gap and everything, which is uh, monstrously dangerous? Yeah. So yeah. so from the Darien Gap, he, he basically did take one month where he had to stop. Uh, he was, I guess, detained in, in Costa Rica and he was in a migrant shelter oh, for some time. Okay. But a lot of it he did walk. He, he said he walked... Um, from Mexico City to Oaxaca, or from Oaxaca to Mexico City. It's a long way. It is a long way, and yes, he said is. that it was very hot. He said that it was very hard. Mm -hmm. He was very talkative, and he was telling a lot of stories um, about like how he found food and like how he stayed alive. But uh, one thing that stood out to me from talking to Jorge was he, at the end of our conversation, um, this is sad, but at the end of the conversation, he said, can I add you on Facebook? And I said, you know what? Sure. Like, add me on Facebook. That's interesting. And so he takes his phone phone out. He turns it on. And while he's adding himself, you know, on Facebook, on my phone, too, he shows me. 
he's like, look, this is my friend Alejandro. Like he shows me a Facebook profile and he's like, he was staying here with me, but he has been able to successfully cross over. He's in Denver now. And he was just kind of like, he was, he was saying all this with like a big smile on his face, which made me think about like what, what brings a lot of people to the border is like this hope that they're going to make it in and they're willing to sacrifice anything for that. Right. Right. So just, I think the more people that you hear about that are able to cross over successfully, um, that word gets back to all of the friends and all of the family and they'll do anything to get over. And once they get to Juarez, you could see, you could see the U S on the other side, you know, it's a very different border than a lot of the other borders as far oh, as sure. infrastructure goes. Yeah. I think sometimes there's, there's miles of nothing before you get to the border. But in this case with Juarez and El Paso, people walk back and forth. That's people right. work in one and live in one. Like it happens a lot. all the time, yeah. Yeah, and so people get to Juarez, they just want to be in the U.S., and they have so much hope. And what's sad about this is that that's the hope that pushes them into the hands of, of the cartels that exploit them and that take advantage of that vulnerability. And so that really stood out to me. And what a lot of the members of our Border Security Coalition were saying is, I think what's so special about Texas um, and something that's very special of El Paso, but just Texas in general, mm -hmm. is that it's a very friendly city to immigrants, you know? And yeah. I think that a lot of us in Texas, you know, we're not against immigration. We're not against migrants. We're very welcoming to people who are different. Texas is very diverse. It is, yeah. And we notice that in El Paso, like it's very diverse. They're very, very welcoming, not just to us, but they're very welcoming to people. But they want to have a say in who they allow into Texas. 100%. And I think that we can all say that, but... Without which there is no real self-rule. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Let me ask you this, though. You know, one of the things that we know uh, and we know this through through experience, through research and so on, is that everybody who makes it to the border in a migratory capacity is 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 trafficked in yeah. some fashion. There's somebody exploiting someone else uh, and the trafficking doesn't stop when they enter the United States, which is why you end up going and working in the places that you work. And there's typically a debt you have to pay off. And so it's it's right. a web that ensnares them. Um, uh, did, did, did Jorge discuss that with you at all or did anyone else when you were in Juarez? No, no, he he didn't. Um, I I didn't ask. Okay. And I think that a lot of it happens maybe once you're in Mexico and crossing over into the U.S. So I don't know how that went for him because when I obviously when I met him, I was still on the Mexico side. Did anyone point out to you uh, the 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 halcones uh, when you were in Juarez? The coyotes. Uh, not the coyotes, but the halcones, the 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 lookouts who uh, will monitor you and anybody else uh, who's there no. to see who's saying what. Um, no. Uh, well, so we should have a uh, an off podcast conversation about yeah. that. Um, but just so the listeners know, uh, here yeah. it's it's very common if you go into a border city, uh, which uh, let me be clear, I don't recommend you do. Like 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 you yeah. you did it. You had somebody who was knowledgeable and on the ground. You're Spanish fluent. Um, uh, but uh, it's 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 not advised. But if you do it, typically when you go to these camps, uh, there, there, there's going to be somebody who's a halcon, uh, who is who is basically the watcher, the person okay. who supervises and reports back everything that's going on with these visitors. Mm -hmm. So I will guarantee you, uh, 100%, that as you were talking to Jorge, um, there was probably a halcon watching you, and Jorge probably knew who he was. Uh, that's that, that. That's almost certainly the reality. It was. I, I doubt it was a. It was. It was a free conversation. Um, yeah. uh, that that doesn't devalue anything that he told you because it's 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 extremely interesting. Right. Um, uh, but it puts a, it puts another cast on it. I think. Yeah. 
well, we were kind of sticking out like a sore thumb. No doubt. So there was a lot of people looking at us. It could have been anyone. Tell me but... about, uh, t- tell me about, you know, you sent this video back uh, that, yeah. that went up on, on, on Texas Policy Foundation's um, uh, uh, Instagram feed. Yeah. But, uh, but you, you, you were on the South Bank we were, of yeah. the Rio Grande watching people cross. And tell yeah. us about that. Yeah, I, I definitely didn't expect that. And we went to this other border crossing before that where we thought we would get to see a lot of people lining up and waiting at the gates and waiting to cross. And once we got there, everybody was packing up and leaving. They were like, man, we can't we can't find anyone. Like it was a lot of news outlets. Mm-hmm. They, and they told us, they were like, man, we can't find anything. I think everybody's crossed already. I think they're all in Juarez. I mean, I, I think they're all in El Paso. Interesting. So we were like, that's that can't. That can't be. Right. So we kept looking and, and finally we got to, I think it was gate 42. Okay. And we had the opportunity to stand there at the riverbanks on the Mexico side and watch basically as people like walked right past us and uh, skipped, used some rocks to like skip over the river. They're and crossing the river illegally. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Right. There's some In videos. In broad daylight. Yeah. In broad daylight, just walking right past us. There were cameras. There was like, like all of these all of these people reporting on it everywhere around us and and they just would walk right past us with i mean it was like coolers and and big things of water and and all sorts of food and this was very funny to me i took a picture but it's just not what i expected there were taxis dropping them off yeah and that's just not the kind of that's not what you expect and no. and i i certainly didn't expect you know for people to be dropped off in a taxi with things and then and then cross over and they were pushing through this old barbed wire Mm -hmm. or crawling right under it there was a lot of gaps in it and then basically getting in line to 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 go wait until they're let in and so that was uh i think you're you're told about what happens you even see videos on what happens but you you don't really believe it until you see it yourself and that was a very very crazy experience for me and and something that we were told the 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 day before which Mm -hmm. was kind of rolling in my mind we we met with dps um we met with the the regional director of the west texas region uh dps our state troopers uh, again for the listeners yeah yes our state troopers and they basically told us a little bit about what goes on in el paso what's happening on the ground they told us they're having multiple car chases a day and then they, they 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 told us about the process of of once the migrants come in and they're processed and and they have to deal with them. Mm -hmm. And something that I found uh, very, very fascinating is he told us it's not the same people that they used to get. He said, you know, years ago, we used to get people that wanted to come here and find work and people that just wanted to, to be in the USA. They had respect for the USA. They wanted to be Americans. They wanted to come here and have a better life. And that's not the kind of people that we're getting anymore. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Who are they getting now? He said that. Um, he said that the people that they're getting don't really want to assimilate or be part of this country. He mm. he said, uh, quote, he said they're very entitled, and that when they come here and they cross over, they expect some sort of goodie bag. They have no respect for law enforcement. They have no respect for the citizens or the people that are there. And, um, and this is the view of the Texas Department of Public Safety. That is what he said. It's quoted in, in an article from one of the journalists that were sure. there with us. And, and maybe I can quote that 
or I can link that to our podcast. Yeah, we'll link it, we'll link it in the description. Yeah. As well, yeah, but they basically don't want anything to do with the U.S. They're coming here. They, they want the opportunities that they have here, but they don't want to assimilate. They want nothing to do with the people that are here. They don't want to learn our language. Mm. They are loyal to their home countries. And he said they are very you know, disrespectful of law enforcement. They're very disrespectful of DPS. They give them a hard time. And, and that, that was very fascinating to me because I think that a lot of the time we think of migrants as people that just want to come and, and be Americans. And we get it. I mean, we all get that why, why you would want to come to this country. It's a great country. Why would you not want to be American? Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and yeah. I feel bad and I, I can relate. You know, I really can. Yeah. I, I've had the opportunity to come here for college, but I have so many fam family members back home that didn't. And that would do anything right. to have that opportunity. And to be clear, you were born a U.S. citizen. Yeah, I yeah, was born right. a U.S. citizen. Yeah. But even, even, though, even though you were raised in Bolivia. Yeah, I was yeah. raised in Bolivia. I went to you know high school in Bolivia. But I was like, I really want to go to college in the U.S. one day. Of course. And I am fortunate enough that I had the opportunity. But a lot of my family members didn't. Right. You know, and, and I've even watched my husband go through the very long and painful legal process. He was waiting for over six years before he got to live here. Yeah. And so I know it's hard. Like, I know a lot of people want to do it. It's just very interesting that, like, people like my mom wanted to be, like, Americans so bad. And um, people now have no respect for the country that they're coming into. They just kind of want to exploit it. So I think that's very sad. It does indicate uh, an absence of that respect. And, and you have to you have to balance out, you know, there, there, there's certainly the, the desire to enter illegally. Um, is is easily motivated by desperation, right? Which doesn't necessarily imply a lack of respect, but there is an implicit absence of respect in that decision to cross, and and, and there's also an implicit lack of respect in in uh, undertaking that decision um, with precisely kind of the aesthetic uh, that you talk about, which is uh, you know kind of the goodie bag expectation, right? Um, the belief. Let me ask you this though: uh, you know, a lot of the individuals, and correct me if I'm I'm wrong, but 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 they'll cross, so they'll cross illegally. Uh, they'll, you know, do what they do. They'll go past the barriers, squeeze through the barbed wire, go under the fence. There's a place in Del Rio where there's, um, you get the border wall, and then the wall ends, and then the fence next to it, which is basically a, a it's it's a it's a wire and and. Um, so it's like a wooden wire fence. It's basically been wrecked because people just go to the end Oof. of the wall and walk around the right. walk around the wall. Um, but but a lot of these people line up to. Um, basically get detained and processed, right? Because they know that once that happens and they're given, at least on the federal side, their you know, notice to report, notice to appear, that they can just dis disappear into the interior and they're right. never heard from again. I mean, these people, yeah. you know, they, they don't show up uh, for the adjudication. They certainly don't go back if they're told to. Um, uh, what's the difference between uh, those individuals uh, and the ones, you mentioned the car chases. Like if, if, if you can get into the United States, then why are there car chases? I'm, I'm sorry, if you can get into the United States. If you can get into the United States and surrender yourself and basically uh, you know, have a reasonable assurance that once you're detained by federal authority that you're going to be released into the interior, which is, in fact, right. largely the Biden administration policy at this point, um, then who is it that's that, that, that's zipping down the road? Why don't they surrender to? I mean, I think we know the answer, Oh, you right? mean the cartel members? Correct, People yeah. that are evading the law. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. What, yeah, what's, and what's that the happens so much, and, and that kind of blew my mind because mm -hmm. you hear about these videos, but... They showed us at, at the DPS briefing, they showed us a video of it on the street that we were staying in. Um, mm. It was the same exact street that our hotel was on and there's this super high speed chase that ends in a wreck. And I've just never seen it like hit so close to home, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, these are the people that are being smuggled. Um, they're, 
the the drug cartels that are just taking advantage of all these poor migrants that want to come in and using them to I guess take away attention from what's actually happening and move things illegally through other parts right. of the border. So these are individuals who are moving goods as well as people. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that th that they use a lot of people like as human shields. You might not see, you know, when you see migrants coming in, these poor migrants a lot of the time you see them coming in and you're like, "Well, they're not doing anything wrong." A lot of people think that, right? Right. But they are taking away resources and they're taking away attention from God knows what else is happening on other parts of the border yeah. because they are so overwhelmed. Yeah. The border patrol agents are so overwhelmed. And so, and it's very sad because so many people are trafficked. Uh, we were, you know, we've, we've talked about this a lot, but the organizations that help migrants once they have crossed on the, on the U.S. side, they tell you that they don't even ask when they see women and children come in if they've been abused, if they've been sexually assaulted. They oh just gosh. assume. Yeah. Because a lot of the women and children that come in, they're they're raped, they're abused, they're beat. Hmm. And so it's just an assumption that they've made that, oh, you made this journey, like you've had it bad. You've you've paid the price. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's horrible. It's so sad. And I know, you know, a lot of people have called, I think Secret the Secretary of Homeland Security, Mayorga, has just, just said this again recently, but he was calling um, the Trump border policies inhumane. And I, I just kind of shake my head when I hear that because there are no policies that are more inhumane than what's happening right now. Yeah. And Mark Morgan said this, uh, Tom Homan said this, a lot of people in our coalition said this, but if you really care about migrants and if you really like want to save and protect lives, then you need to secure the border because this isn't benefiting anyone but criminals. Yeah, yeah. The the, the continuation of the traffic itself is is, is terrible. And, and two things can be simultaneously true: uh, that uh, you know, say, say the median migrant uh, is you know possibly a personally virtuous individual who really just wants to work and better their family, and they are direct participants in and people who further one of the most inhumane trades imaginable. Uh, you know, yeah. what, what commerce is worse than commerce and humanity, uh, however you construe it. Um, and the human trafficking, uh, certainly in Mexico at the border, absolutely uh, fits that bill. But the good news is that despite all these problems, Mexico is an ally and a friend. Ooh, is that right? Lucky us. Yes, that's correct, yes. Josh. You yeah. nailed it. Yeah. So we do have a lot. Thank you for letting me talk about El Paso, but we do Absolutely. have a lot more that we need to discuss. And I'll start with um, our new partners at Mexico. So something, this is a little bit funny, but something that happened this week, you sent me the video, the YouTube video, mm -hmm. but there's this video of, of, of Senator John Kennedy um, during last Wednesday's Senate Appropriations Committee. And he's kind of grilling the, the Ann Milgram, the, the head of the DEA, and asking her why Biden doesn't have a more aggressive strategy against the cartels. Right. I have his quote. I'll read it. Yeah. Um, this is important because it's ricocheted around Mexico and the Mexicans exactly. have uh, made a lot of hay out of it. Please. Yes, they have. He says... He's asking a question, but he says, if AMLO invited the American military and or law enforcement personnel to come into Mexico and work with his, we could stop the cartels, couldn't we? And, and Milgram says, like, yes, I believe we can stop the cartels. And then he said, have you made that suggestion to President Biden? Why hasn't he done it? Our economy is $23 trillion. Mexico's economy is $1.3 trillion. Ours is 18 times bigger. We buy $400 billion every year from Mexico. 
without the people of America, Mexico, figuratively speaking, would be eating cat food out of a can and living in a tent behind an outback. It's an interestingly <laughs> specific choice of restaurants. Yeah. Yes. So I want to I want to talk about some of the reactions to this comment, but first I want to get yours. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it, it, it's it's been interesting. The only reason I heard about this comment uh, was, of course, uh, I guess it was the next day. Uh, it was either the next day or the next or or, or forty eight hours afterwards yeah. that this became uh, a big deal for the Mañanera with with, with AMLO. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. so President Andres Manuel López Obrador is president of Mexico, and his foreign minister Marcelo Ebrard, who might be the next president of Mexico, who knows? Um, but they both pop up uh, at the next morning press mm-hmm. conference, and 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 there's sort of this the, the, this unanimity of messaging. Um, from Mexican officialdom, which is that Senator Kennedy, uh, who's uh, his name is John Kennedy, it's not John F. Kennedy, he's a senator from Louisiana, for those who don't know, um, uh, was, was racist. That's what gets bandied about. Because we live in an age in which every, uh, you know, inopportune or impolitic or imprudent statement is, is racist. Well, yeah. I, I, I don't, I, I got to be honest with you, I think uh, the senator's statement uh, may have been, um, uh, not may have been, was impolitic, hyperbolic, racist, probably not. But that being said, um, uh, the the Mexican officialdom is is very very intent oh, yeah. on on generating kind of this outrage of it. Um, but what I would suggest uh, for for all of us, kind of looking at it with the with a bit of a remove in terms of time, and the ability to analyze events a little bit more closely, is uh, set aside his rhetoric. Was he right? You know, does the United States have leverage? versus Mexico, should the United States take a more aggressive stance toward the cartels and their friends in Mexican governance, including the president of Mexico? Um, uh, you know, d- Do we have the ability to disengage from Mexico economically in ways that Mexico does not versus the United States? And, and the answer to all that is yes, actually. I mean, the senator, uh, you know, in his own way, was getting to a very important truth that does not seem to have really penetrated in policymaking, certainly in the bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. And it was notable that, uh, that, that Milgram, Milgram, right, the, yeah. the, the DEA chief, uh, um, refused to directly answer the senator's questions. Oh, yeah. uh, and, 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 and there's a reason that she didn't, uh, because this is nothing that the Biden White House wants to do, but it's also nothing that the Biden White House actually has good answers on. Why don't we take a much more aggressive stance toward the Mexican government. You know, the Mexican government's first victims, or you know, first of all, we should be clear, are Mexicans themselves who deserve you know far better governance than what they actually get uh, from the Morena regime right. or from any of their elites. And we've talked yeah. about this many times in this podcast. But at the same time, you know, the the, the continual failure of the United States writ large, and, and it is a failure that stretches back generations. So I just want to be clear: it didn't you know the Biden administration is guilty of it, but uh, you know, is uh, did not originate it. Um, but the, but but there has been a failure to link security and trade. Mexico has done well off of trade with the United States. Certainly in the post 1994 era, um, the emergence of you know what what middle class there is in Mexico, which is not as big as it ought to be, but still relatively large. Mexican manufacturing, the extent to which the Mexican economy has globalized uh, in the past 30 years or so, has really been due to first to NAFTA and then to USMCA. Now, I'm not arguing, I would never argue, certainly not as a native South Texan, that it hasn't benefited the United States as well, because it manifestly has. But you know, we are reaching a point, and this is something that Mexican officialdom 
absolutely wants to obscure. And it's also something that Washington, D.C. doesn't want to deal with at all um, for, for its own reasons. Uh, but we're reaching a point at which the cost-benefit calculus for the United States may not be uh, in the direction in which it's traditionally always pointed, which is toward trade, toward openness, regardless of what the Mexicans do vis-a-vis right. -vis security. The security situation has gotten so bad, Mexican elite corruption has gotten so bad that the senator is right. We shouldn't lose sight of this. The senator is right. However he chose to phrase it, the senator is right that we need to have a really good hard look at where our points of leverage lie. And our points of leverage lie first and foremost in the trade and commercial relationship. That's why when Governor Abbott here in Texas does something that, as far as I know, he alone has been innovative enough to do and conduct secondary inspections of northbound traffic from legal ports of entry, the Mexicans... Uh, essentially snap to attention, uh, Mexican governance, I should say, essentially snap to attention. That's the thing that gets results yeah. out of them. Historically, results have been gotten when the United States is assertive and strong and um, uh, demands accountability. Right, so, we've seen it. We, you know, we, we've seen it time again, and we see it throughout history too. If I could, the, the, the piece that you read from uh, uh, when to, to, to open this episode has another very interesting passage. Do you mind if I read a passage from the oh, piece? Of course, uh, yeah. It's very interesting. So, so again, this is, this is, this is what, you, what you found. It's, uh, the title of the piece is General Rafael Benavides and the Texas-Mexico Border Crisis of 1877. There's another passage buried in there um, uh, so if I may, if I may, uh, if you'll indulge Please me for a do, moment. Please do, yeah. So this is, the, this is from far down. During the spring of 1877, civil and military authorities in Texas reported that raiders from Mexico had committed new atrocities north of the border. Some complained that since Diaz, Porfirio Diaz, he's the Mexican dictator, mm -hmm. had come to power, the level of hostility and lack of cooperation had increased on the Mexican side. Convinced that Mexico was unable or unwilling to check the depredations, on June 1st, 1877, the Secretary of War informed General Sherman, commander of the Army of the United States, that although President Hayes wished to cooperate with Mexico, the invasion of U.S. territory by thieves and robbers should no longer be endured. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like what's happening now. Yeah. Uh, so... Porfirio Diaz, on the Mexican side, again, this is the dictator of Mexico, contemporaneous in 1877, Porfirio Diaz considered that the order of June 1 on the U.S. side to be an insult to Mexico and a violation of existing treaties between the two countries. In response, so this part's interesting, in response, on June 18, 1877, he instructed General Juan Ogason, Secretary of War, to order a General Geronimo Trevino, Commander-in-Chief of the Division of the North, uh, a noble name, uh, to position his men along the frontier, prevent lawbreakers from escaping across the border, and deliver captured criminals to the proper authorities in accordance with the extradition treaty between the United States and Mexico of December 11th, 1861. It's a fascinating moment uh, to me because uh, you, you see here an episode, and not that history maps one-to-one, -one, and not mm -hmm. that 1877 is 2023. That's not what I wish to argue. But one of the things that you and I have talked about in terms of kind of the sweep of history in U.S.-Mexican affairs and border affairs is that you do see the th same themes recurring over and over and over. Yeah. And what you get in an episode like this, and this is this is why this, this particular article. Uh, the, the fellow who wrote it um, is named Michael Smith, who I now need to look up because I really like the scholarship yeah, in this. Uh, uh, but, uh, but, but you see the United States basically um, saying the things that we at the foundation have been saying for some time. We'd love to partner with Mexico. In fact, Senator Kennedy proposed it as well. Uh, we'd love to partner with Mexico. We want to work with them. But if we can't, we're going to secure our own interests. And suddenly that is what gets action from the Mexican side. In 1877, suddenly Porfirio Diaz, and that's really what the whole of this article about, 
he sends General Rafael Benavides down to the border, and Benavides actually ends up restoring order uh, at the border, and and so and so the raid, like the one that you talked about on Rio Grande City, where it's yeah. uh, Segundo Garza, is that right? Yeah. Who, who gets uh, what, what a name, right? A segundo, uh, he yeah. must be he must be the junior. number two child, yeah. I guess, right? Or, or he's a junior. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it effectively comes to an end. That unfortunately uh, remains uh, a template um, for our relations now. Much as we you know have pretended, I think in the past thirty years that uh, we've moved into this new era and you know Mex- relationships uh, the relationship between the United States and Mexico can be conducted yeah. on the same basis that it is say between the US and Canada or the US and Great Britain simply isn't true um, it certainly isn't true under um, Lopez Obrador so I, I I just think I just think it's something worth noting yeah I yeah. totally do and, and I want to since you said that keep picking your brain and um, this is not what I believe but I want to play a little okay, bit of go ahead. Devil, yeah. devil's advocate but do, do you think, I mean, AMLO se- seems to be putting a lot of value on like what Mexico has done for the U.S., yeah. as you said. Yeah. And um, he had been attacking DeSantis. I don't know if you saw that. But, I saw a little bit of it. Yeah. But basically, there's this new bill that passed in Florida that gives Governor DeSantis like 12 million. I think it's 12 million dollars. Mm. Um to be able to continue to do what he was doing, which is shipping migrants to the north. Okay. Um, and AMLO responded to that, you know, calling it inhumane. Uh, what else did he call it? He said he that DeSantis is taking advantage of people's pain, uh, migrants' pains for political gain. Uh, he talks about how he sent all those migrants up north to Kamala Harris's house uh, during the oh, cold sure. and made them suffer. Um, but he used that to say, like, that that basically like the US doesn't know what it has and, and, and says like, well, what would the US do? What would the US economy do without our economy? Right. What would they do without all of our workers? Yeah. And then talks about how, you know, if the US is going to behave like this, it would be like 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 we're shooting ourselves in the foot by yeah. not working with Mexico. Yeah. So I know you appreciate the value that Mexico has had for, for the US. Mm-hmm. We both do. A lot of people do. Sure. But do you think he's overvaluing like, how much Mexico has contributed to the U.S. and not seeing the other side? Man, that, that, is, a, that is a really, really good question, Melissa. Uh, uh, it's impossible to know what's in his head, uh, honestly. Uh, you know, I, I do I do think all things being equal that um, from an economic perspective, Mexico needs the United States uh, in ways that are not true in reverse. Uh, you know, it, it is indisputable to me that, let's say, all the all the Mexican nationals, I don't mean all Mexican, I mean, I'm Mexican, half Mexican, but uh, but if all, all Mexican nationals disappeared from the U.S., there would be economic effects. But net in the long run, the United States would be fine. Uh, I, I don't think the reverse is true of Mexico, and you know, mm-hmm. God forbid that we have to find out uh, unless Mexican governance continues on its current path. In which case, these things become more and more thinkable, which is actually the the, the outcome that we want to avoid uh, in the long run. Um, you know, we, we have to we have to know that that, that Amlo in particular, his government um, uh, adheres to this um, this this ideological concept of the migrant as sort of a, sort of a hero in a way, which is paradoxical. So. When you go to the airport in Mexico City, uh, last time I was there, it's actually uh, when when you and I were flying. Although you mm-hmm. stayed a, a couple more days and yeah. enjoyed it, and I, I went back uh, went back home. Uh, but uh, you know, when, when I was flying out, um, I was waiting at my gate at the airport, and uh, there's this large video billboard, and it's playing this ad over and over from the Migration Institute and and the Mexican Navy. Interestingly oh. enough, which is well, well, so so the Navy runs the airport in Mexico City. Right. It's part of the militarization of Mexican civic life that Amos presided over. 
whatever. Right. But this video uh, talked about how um, essentially, you know, the migrants are heroes. You're always in Mexico's heart. Mexico is always in your heart. Uh, we're ready to welcome you back anytime. But in the meantime, just know that you're on a great mission for Mexico out there in the world. And so there's this valorization uh, of the migrant. Now, the, part of the reason for that is that they send back a tremendous amount of money in remittances. It's it's it's, it's huge. Yeah. I don't remember the, the the figure, but it's a significant. It may be the number one foreign earning uh, input. It's massive. Yeah. So 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 there's that. Which by the way, the cartels all take their cut of it because most of these people of have been trafficked by them. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, but you know, contrast that that valorization of the migrant, which okay, uh, that's that, that's one thing, and that didn't start with AMLO, by the way. That, that goes way back. Um, uh, with with the actual objective conditions, these migrants have to endure under AMLO, which is, to your point uh, earlier, you know, talking about what you saw in Ciudad Juarez, horrifying. Uh, you know, it's 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 so 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 there is this there is this. Um, uh, I keep using the word valorization. I, I need to find a synonym for it. But 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 there is that for them. But at the same time, there is the the uh, kind of the hypocrisy. And did you say, say hypocrisy? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, hypocrisy of of how they're actually treated, how they're trafficked. So um, many of them are killed. So many of them are killed. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, there's the phenomenon of the uh, desaparecidos. Uh, you know, the yeah. disappeared ones, and it's just uh, it's something heartbreaking you can see in Mexico City is is the posters of these individuals uh, in multiple places around the city. Um, uh, you know, it's men, women, children, uh, everybody in between. It's it's uh, it's it's just awful. And so, uh, is is Amlo overestimating it? Yeah, I mean, he overestimates everything. He overestimates yeah. himself. Um, uh, you know, as a historical figure. Um, but this is. The, the, this is his. Uh, this is his approach yeah. to absolutely everything, which is to amplify. He's banking, in some sense, on the United States, the official, you know, like kind of the apparatus in the United States, kind of ducking its head and saying, "Okay, you know, we like the worst thing we can imagine is losing cooperation with you or losing trade with you," but uh, that's not going to last forever. Uh, right now, with the Biden administration in charge, it is a good bet that they run because the Biden administration simply does not want, for a host of reasons, does not want to take on Mexico. They just don't. For ideological yeah. reasons, they probably do agree with AMLO that the United States is to blame for a lot of this. Um, but the day is going to come when there's going to be a different administration. This is going to be uh, a different party in control, at least of the Senate. And uh, the, you're going to see a very different conversation that oh, yeah. there, 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 there needs to be uh, an appreciation among all policymakers. I want to read something that was in um, Politico's National Security Daily uh, yes. yesterday, uh, if Perfect. I could. That's what I was going to bring up on next. this. OK, well, great minds. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, on this, the um, uh, so there's a bill uh, that is uh, I guess it was originated in, in both the Senate and, uh, and and the House. It's from. Joni Ernst in Iowa, Tim Kaine in Virginia. So, you know, a nice bipartisan pedigree in the Senate. And there's yep. a couple of um, bipartisan uh, uh, sponsors in the House. But anyway, so, so so the bill, I'll just read from, from Politico here, declares fentanyl trafficking a national security threat and orders the Pentagon to boost military cooperation with Mexico. Um, uh, you know, if, far be it for me to critique a bill that I, in, in, in full candor, I have not read the bill. But if the bill is as reported, uh, it is... Um, uh, it strikes me as, as verging on the ludicrous to uh, rest your hope upon increased cooperation with the Mexican military when the Mexican military, so then in particular, which is the army, uh, is itself a major trafficker. Um, when people like General Cienfuegos, who we released in uh, you know early 2021, yeah. um, uh, were themselves uh, major uh, you know, you know, godfathers of trafficking. Um, there's another quote that I want to read from this political piece, too. Uh, uh, and, and this is, I, I read it because... Um, this quote sort of uh, exemplifies uh, almost everything that is just uh, detestable in a way about uh, kind of DC culture. 
Um, this is an off-ramp. This is the quote. This is an off-ramp for the AUMF nonsense. Said a House GOP aide, citing proposed Republican-led bills calling for an authorization for the use of military force against Mexican fentanyl traffickers. The staffer was granted anonymity to discuss how the measure is generally perceived by Republicans on the Hill. Well, look, if if um, first of all, put your name uh, on this on this kind of quote. Uh, there, there are reasons to go. Um, Anonymous in some stories. Uh, I get that. I mean, that's part of, you know, the, there are prudential reasons for it. There's no prudential reason for this, uh, except for the fact that this particular aide and the office to whom this aide belongs to uh, knows that they're on the wrong side of the conservative grassroots and probably the majority of the American people at this point on this particular topic. Oh, yeah. uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it, at some point, you know, and again, I think you and I can fairly be described as we're pro-Mexico, we're pro-Mexicans, yeah. uh, uh, despite you know a very you know I would argue clear-eyed you know, not to speak for you, um, so tell me if you disagree. I think we have a clear-eyed understanding of what the Mexican state and government is right now. Oh yeah. Uh, but 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 we like Mexico. Uh, we love Mexico City. Um, uh, you know we're very pro-Mexican. But th this kind of thing, this um, uh, almost kind of supine approach to a Mexican state that is aggressively involved in cartel activities, aggressively involved in pushing fentanyl into American communities, aggressively involved in human trafficking, is unbecoming of a constitutional officer uh, and his or her, because we don't know who it is, his we or her staff know. who are entrusted with the defense of that constitution of the people of the United States. And at some point, that's going to change. Yeah, I don't say it should change. It will change in it the fullness will. of time. Unless, unless the Mexican state changes first, uh, in which I repose very little hope. Yeah. Well, regardless of, you know, what they have to say about this bill, which, you know, they're calling a real solution is what they're calling it. But they're right about one thing, right? And that is that the U.S.-Mexico relationship is not near where it needs to be. It's not near where it needs to be, um, uh, but I'll tell you, the Pentagon reaching out to Sedena uh, is not going to get it there. No, it's not. Sedena has no incentive to um, to cooperate with something like this. No, um, so. but but I guess hopefully all of this talk is is a good step in the right direction, to moving towards the actual threat, which is security. Um, I mean, the, we we talk about it a lot, but the fentanyl crisis. I love your optimism. <laughs> that's so. I that, try to that, find that, something. Okay. No, but... you're you're a kind person, uh, and and I hope you're right. I really do. I hope you're right. I hope so too. Yeah. I think that recently I was reading that the administration, the Biden administration, um, has apparently mentioned climate change 20 times in the national security strategy. Yes. Um, but they mentioned fentanyl twice, and right. fentanyl is something that you know has killed more people than a lot of wars. I mean, fentanyl wipes out like like what was it like two or three Vietnams every year, and uh, and climate change has killed uh, you know like nobody. Uh, yeah, so, so maybe right. this will uh, you know get uh, it's all about the your priorities values. in order a little bit. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, but okay, I wanted to bring this. Up. I meant to bring this up with you earlier, but Please. since we're on the topic of of all of the legislators that are are open to using the American military to to attack. Mexican drug cartels in mm -hmm. Mexico and, and the root cause of the fentanyl. You suggested that I start watching Narcos Mexico. And thank you, because I, I have, and it's very good. Oh, good. But there, there's this one line, I think it's at the beginning of the first episode, but it stood out to me and I remembered it. And it talks about how military intervention never works, mm -hmm. or it never works the way that we want it to. 
because um, drug dealers are like cockroaches. So military intervention with them will usually end up backfiring. Is that, is, is that the quote in the show? They say cockroaches? Okay. Yeah. I just says, want to be clear you're not be pulling a Senator Kennedy on this. No, no, uh, no. Okay, right, this, is, yeah. this is a quote. It yeah. says drug dealers are like cockroaches. You can poison them, step on them, set them on fire, but they will always come back and usually stronger than ever. Anytime you think you've knocked out the dope business, a smart trafficker will only find a better way. Yeah. Yeah. Are you asking do you think me that's accurate? Uh, to an extent, I do actually. I I don't think it's ever realistic. You know, you know, we we have to we have to make policy and engage in public affairs in a spirit of prudence and realism. That's one thing actually that distinguishes conservatives from our friends on the left. Uh, you know, we're not utopians. We understand that the fallen nature of man will always be with us. You'll never stamp out illegal drugs. You'll never stamp out drug trafficking. But that does not liberate us from the obligation to fight these things, which destroy lives, ruin people, corrupt innocence, uh, and and you know, ravage communities and so on. Um, uh, so, so it's true. So if you enter into this kind of endeavor saying, you know, once we get the cartels, once we take out the cartels, then our problem with illegal drugs is done. Then our problem with public corruption is done. None of that's true. But what you can do is you can mitigate effects and you can set boundaries and you can, um, you can, uh, you know, you know, establish that there is a principle of fighting these things. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't, uh, d disband the police force because crime persists. Uh, we disband police forces because uh, Sometimes we do. because fanatical <laughs> ideologues yeah. have taken over city governments, but uh, yeah. but but not because crime persists, and and, right. and you know, we we don't disband the army um, because wars haven't stopped, right? And it, and it's the same principle. We can we we must continue to fight crime, and I think I think there's enough evidence at this point. If you're talking about the narcotics trade or you know like the illegal drug trade specifically, but expand it to anything else, human trafficking, illegal goods, and so on, um, that uh, that the evils that these things bring with them are more than sufficient to warrant us uh, opposing them. And yeah. you know, to, to borrow from Shakespeare, not by opposing end them, because we won't end them, oh. but, 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 but simply by, uh, by, by there, there is virtue in the opposition. Well, amen yeah. to that. Yeah. That was there really go. good, Josh. Okay, thanks. Well, um, I want to shift gears a little bit, because there's still a few different topics that I want us to squeeze into this podcast. Okay. One of them is something that we've been working a lot on this week, and mm -hmm. I wanted you to give another little sneak peek to, but our Mexican migration pro. Uh, our Mexican migration project. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Uh, so, so it's something that we've mentioned here on this podcast before. Uh, the Mexican migration project, which we uh, should actually have out in public forum. Uh, if you're listening to this, um, probably about ten days after you listen to this, uh, we, we'll have something uh, public on the website. So, yeah. put an asterisk on that. Um, uh, but we've we've done, I believe, the first ever real look at uh, where the Mexican populations in all fifty states come from within Mexico. And uh, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, I think that like the top level finding that we found is that the average U.S. state, typified by a place like California, mm -hmm. has most of its Mexican nationals, its Mexican origin people, from southern Mexico. So you're talking, you know, you, you, Jalisco would be like the farthest north major source, but then, but then, you know, Guerrero, uh, Michoacan, Chiapas, uh, Oaxaca, and so on. Uh, and 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 it's that population. Texas turns out to have. And this confirms a thesis that I've had for a long time: uh, a, a qualitatively unique Mexican or po origin population. It's Nuevo León. It's um, uh, Nuevo León, Zacatecas, uh, like San Luis Potosí, the Bajío region. Um, uh, but uh, you get a very different cultural and ethnic mix. So, so, so we're going to have that data out very soon. Uh, I think it's tremendously interesting. Uh, it sheds a lot of light on, I think, on a lot of the phenomena that we've seen over the past, really even over the past five years. For example, the the famous 2020 kind of rightward shift of, oh, yeah. of, 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 of Texas yeah. Mexican Americans 
um, uh, politically, uh, you know, possibly partially, partially explicable, not fully, but partially explicable by the fact that they come from different places that are culturally distinct within Mexico. Mexico, as you and I have discussed, is is fantastically um, heterogeneous, and, uh, and and it makes sense that that heterogeneity would be reflected in the United States. We're very excited about this research coming out, and I'm hoping that we, in time, do a phase two uh, that digs into, now that we've shown kind of the what, um, the why of all these differential effects based upon these different origins. Yeah, it's been, I didn't know much about it before you started talking to me about this migration pro project that you were working on before I even got here. Yeah. But now that I've been more involved in like helping with the research, I think it's so fascinating. And I'm excited for all of our listeners to get to read it and it's everybody unique. to get to see what we found. Looking forward to releasing um, it. Yeah, so thanks for sharing. And then since we've been talking about parties and divisiveness as well, I wanted to ask you about one other thing, and it is... Uh, the Texas Historical Association, uh, which has become very left-wing, and there's some drama around that. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, the Texas State Historical Association is is a venerable organization. Um, it's been around. I'm a member. I'm a, pay, I'm a dues-paying member of the TSHA. Uh, and TSHA has done a lot of good work over many, many years. They produce, um, in fact, the in fact the, uh, the they're the publisher of the journal that we got our yeah. um, thing from, Southwestern Historical Quarterly, which that. they published, I think, for like the past 120 years, 130 years. It, it, it's been a long time. And, and look, I am I am fully supportive of the need for institutions like the TSHA. Um, uh, and, and we have to understand these institutions uh, as, as properly representative representative bodies. Um, uh, right now, uh, without without going too deep into it, because I think you could do a whole podcast on, on just this topic. Um, well, let me back up a little bit and talk about why we're talking about it here. You know, you and I oh, talk yeah. a lot about history. Yeah. Uh, and this history is, history serves one major purpose. You know, history, we, we do have an obligation to filial piety, to remembrance, and that's all true. And those are virtues in themselves. But the real utility of history is that history, what happened yesterday, is instruction for us on what we do tomorrow. If we understand history, if we listen to it, if we know it, what it does is it gives us a template for action later on. Right. Uh, and, that, and that's why history is so important. That's why I focus on it. And uh, you know, even in this particular podcast, we've talked a little bit about the template of 1877, shedding some light on, on, on what's happening now on the border in 2023. All of which is to say, TSHA has done, uh, you know, yeoman's work uh, across a century plus. I don't remember exactly when it was founded, but it's it's about a century plus um, uh, in the preservation of Texas uh, Texas history. Right now, there is a dispute within TSHA, uh, and I encourage our listeners just to just to read about it. You can you can uh, Google around and find it. There's been an article I think in Texas Monthly. There's one in Texas Observer. Uh, although with the Observer, you have to read it and then invert every assertion that the Observer makes to actually get to to what's actually happening. I think the I think I think the Texas Monthly one is reasonably fair. Um, uh, Texas Historical Trust has written on it. Uh, uh, and and then there's a variety of news stories about this, but uh, effectively, uh, there's a gentleman named uh, J.P. Bryan who has been, I believe, I believe a major supporter. I don't know him personally, uh, a major supporter of TSHA, uh, and uh, and he's so he's he's from the family that Bryan Texas is named after. That gives you oh, kind of a context. Very okay. deep, very yeah. deep Texas roots. And uh, he is, he's been in TSHA leadership and uh, has tried to bring some um, uh, balance, I think, to uh, a, lot of, a lot of the organization, which, which my understanding, my imperfect understanding, has been weighted uh, a little bit uh, toward, uh, too much, I think, toward um, professional academics who, who tend to have a particular bent 
Um, uh, and that's not a disparagement uh, of them. Uh, it was just, it's just the reality. Uh, in fact, one of the academics, uh, I, again, not someone who I know personally, um, who was very much against uh, uh, J.P. Bryan and his efforts to bring balance to TSHA is a fellow named Benjamin Hever Johnson, uh, who, uh, you know, I, I looked at his Twitter feed the other day and he is way off to the left. Um, uh, but I wave my right hand as I say he's off to the left. Uh, but he's way off to the left. Uh, but at the same time, he's also the author of one of, to me, the most formative works on South Texas history that I've ever read, which is Revolution in Texas. So so even though the guy's way off to the left, you should read Heber Johnson's book on Revolution in Texas because it's a very good book. It's outstanding scholarship. It actually shaped a lot of the way in which I think about the Mexican-American population in South Texas. All of which to say is that this dispute is unfolding essentially between, I'll oversimplify the academics and people like Brian, who I think want to bring a little bit more what I'll describe as Catholicity to, um, right. to, to TSHA. Um, the reason we want to highlight it uh, is because uh, I think that, that what's unfolding there at TSHA is, is tremendously important for the future of public memory uh, in Texas. Institutions matter so much. And in a case like this one, uh, the, the object, I think, and is, is not for one side to eradicate the other. I don't think that's what, what J.P. Bryan is going for. I, no. I haven't understood that at all. But, um, but, but, but to bring that balance and, and that wholeness of, of various points of views from various sources to an institution like TSHA is tremendously important. So, so thank you for bringing it up. Yeah, uh, we, we just want our, yeah, we just want our listeners to, to, to know about it and, and, uh, and, and to look into it because even if you don't think you're into Texas history, even if you're not a TSHA member, um, this actually does affect you, the yeah. education of your kids and the future of your state. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing, Josh. And I think we're nearly out of time. I think we are. Thanks, yeah, Melissa. We've, we always run out. But thank you, Josh, for being on. And thank you to all of our listeners. This is Hard Country, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.